Open your Bibles to Psalm 88. Uh, if you are a church-going person and are familiar with that psalm, you probably just let out a big gasp. Yes, we are looking at Psalm 88. Um, Spurgeon told his people one Sunday, he said this, spiritual sorrows are the worst of mental miseries. Uh, there was a go-to manual in psychological health in Spurgeon's generation called uh, the Manual of Psychological Medicine, and in it, it identifies a specific state of depression that is unique to those who go to church. It's unique to the spiritually minded. It's called religious melancholia. It's a form of depression that, quote, afflicts persons at every moment with conscious and unstoppable terrors of God's displeasure. The manual says that those who suffer this way often engage in extreme uh, religious acts of devotion in ways that harm themselves and others. We would say they become super saints or hyper-holy or spiritually manic, to use some of the language today. The manual also says that although Christianity, quote, is calculated to prevent, not cause spiritual depression, that preachers and church-going people can cause depression, spiritual depression in others. So you might be asking, well, how can that happen? Just like I was asking how that can happen. Well, they do this with their content of their ministry. In other words, their doctrine, their theology, their messages, their views. Their views of sin and grace can cause spiritual depression. Views of law and gospel can cause spiritual depression. Views of the Christian life, especially your understanding of how sin works in the Christian life and even how you change in the Christian life, your understanding and experience of the Christian life, how we see this stuff according to this manual and actually according to the Bible can wreck you depending on how you see things. But then it, we would say it this way. We would say, the content lacks, it's hurtful to us, when the content lacks an understanding and experience of good news, not good advice. That's how we would say it. Somehow when we get that mixed up, good news, not good advice, it wrecks you. It wrecks your home, it wrecks your relationships, it wrecks churches. We could go on to say, however, that there can also be spiritual depression in others, caused by others, by a person's behavior in ministry. In other words, how you relate to people, how you interact with people, uh, the culture or the feel of a ministry or a church. Like, for instance, the lack of understanding in a church, the lack of grace and mercy and honesty and compassion, the lack of friendship and generosity and just a realness and an authenticity and a a sense of sacrifice and serving and welcoming and accepting, right? There can be an atmosphere where there is actually the presence of judgment and law and good advice and a cold, metallic spirit and performance and pleasing people and an approval addiction, hardness, distance, lording over authority, very controlling systems, very controlling leadership very controlling views of this and that, don't drink or chew or go with girls that do kind of stuff. Kathleen Norris in her book, The Cloister Walk, says that when it comes to real help with depression, you're better off with the poets than the Christians, end quote. 
I would say some Christians. So today we look at religious melancholia or spiritual depression. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Please read along with me, Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near to Shoal. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through the sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in, ab in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of, the for, of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from your youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They they surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My, my companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would, um, <clears throat> in this dark psalm, would you... Bring a torch, and would the darkness of this psalm actually be the torch? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, y'all, Psalm 88 is called the gloomy psalm. It's called the saddest psalm in the whole Psalter. It's called terrifying, unthinkable, torture, traumatic. It's called unrelieved by a single ray of comfort or hope. It has been called stark and lonely and pain-riddled. It's been called a wintry landscape of the soul. So I want to welcome you to hell in the Psalms, right? Uh, I think some would say this is the closest thing to hell on earth. I think that's the way Spurgeon described it. So if you want to get as close as you can to hell while you're still alive, here it is. This is it. So why are we here? I mean, what are we doing here, right? I mean, I, for one, would love to be doing David and Goliath right now, right? 
But you picked Elijah. Who picks Elijah <clears throat> over David? So that's why we're here. We were following in 1 Kings 19, Elijah, and he goes into depression. And so began a, a series, a mini-series on depression. So we're part four of a series, a mini-series on depression, and we've got one more next week. This one I had marked on the calendar because I knew this was going to be the most difficult. I was not looking forward to it, but we are here. And that's the thing about when you commit to it, you're here. So we are here. So far, we've looked at Elijah's depression, his road to sorrow. We've looked at Elijah's survival and depression. Then we looked at Paul's depression. And today we look at spiritual depression or religious melancholy, right? Uh, next week, we're going to look at how to help those struggling with depression. That's how we're going to end this thing. I've also come up with something I think we're going to do regularly, and I, sometimes I've done it, but not with as much consistency, but we go through a book in the Bible. Usually, we go Old Testament, New Testament, get different genres, so we're always hearing from different literary structures the water of the Word, right? Well, when we find a hot topic that might be tucked in that particular book, we're going to do a mini-series on it for four or five weeks, so obviously, when we hit depression, we're going to do a mini-series on it. But let's say if we do Jonah in the spring, let's say we hit something on race or let's hit something on, uh, I don't know, maybe there's some a sexuality in there. We're going to do a mini-series on that. We're just going to touch some of those topics, so you can expect that in the future. Here's the plan, and I'm going to tell you the plan in advance. Usually I like to tease you. If you've noticed, I like to hook you, create some tension, and slowly lead you like with crumbs along the way while you're just like this, right? Well, I'm not doing that with this one. That's just way too painful. If I give you a thread and say, hey, follow this thread till we get to the ultimate goal, you're going to let go because the road is too rough. The pathway is too dark. It's so much pain that you're like, forget you, Jeff. I'm out of here. So I'm going to tell you up front where we're going. This passage is taking us somewhere, and I'm just going to tell you where it is. And you're going to hang on to that like a torch, because we are about ready to enter a cave. And if you don't have the torch, you're not going to make it. Here's the torch. But Jesus. Yes, spiritual depression is devastating. But Jesus, the Heidelberg would say, there's only one comfort. There's only one comfort in life and in death. And it's not your dog. And it's not medicine. And it's not your spouse. And it's not your girlfriend. And it's not your bank account. And it's not your good looks. Thank you. <laughs> but Jesus. So now we know where we're going. Are you ready to go into the cave? It's okay if you don't. I'm going to make you anyway. How devastating is spiritual depression? 
Here it is. You ready? Here's the first answer. There are three answers to how devastating spiritual depression is. You feel dead. Your body just hasn't figured it out yet. Look at verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles. That incredible phrase, that incredible phrase, my soul is full of, that phrase is used throughout the Bible dominatingly only. Only here is it used differently, but throughout the Bible it's used for overflowing happiness. My soul is full of overflowing, flourishing. My soul, which means your thinking, your thoughts, your desires, your trusts, your loves, your hopes, your dreams. We would say it today, your psychological self. My psychological self is saturated. It's soaked. It's in surplus of the energy of life. My soul, my psychological self is abundant with the abundance of life. In other words, what it's used mainly for is my soul is so full, there's no room for sorrow. But here, it's your soul is so full, there's no room for sunshine. This soul is full of trauma. This soul is being waterboarded. So, of course, you have the second half of verse 3, would you not? If your soul is full of trouble, of course, his or her life draws near to Sheol. You got Sheol. Look at all the images here. This is unbelievable. It's so poetic. It's so graphic. It's so image-laden. It even has the Raphaim. It even has the, the dead. These Raphaim, right? You have Sheol, the pit, the grave. You have the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. You have Abaddon. You have the darkness. You have the land of forgetfulness. All these things are looking at the exact same thing. What these things are doing is they're they're looking at the exact same thing. They're just going to give you a different angle, a different aspect, a different cut. <clears throat> and they're going to spin it for you. Because each angle, each aspect, each shade of the shadow says something. And it's meant to for you. You're meant to see something different. But here's what they're all looking at. What they're all looking at is the realm of death. The realm of the dead, the kingdom of death, the dark power of death. He's a dark Lord. It even goes into, in Revelation, when you go to Abaddon, it talks about an evil angel that is the Lord of the bottomless pit. So all of those aspects are in here. That death is a realm. Death is a place. Death is a kingdom. And it's unrivaled. And it wins every time. In other words, spiritual depression is the closest thing to walking dead. It was way before the hit TV series. I mean, listen to what it's saying. This is unbelievable. In other words, you are, verse 4, look at this. You are counted among those who go down to the pit, but you can still feel your pulse. Right now, you are counted as those who go down to the pit, but you can count your pulse. You are, verse 5, set loose among the dead, but you're still doing algebra and going to P.E. 
You are, verse 5, like the slain that lie in the grave, but you're still married and have two children to take care of. Verse 6, you are in the depths of the pit and the region's dark and deep, but the sun still hits you in the face this morning. You are, verse 11, in Abaddon, the realm where you perish inch by painful inch, but you're still in your car driving to Sonic at happy hour. You are, verse 12, in the darkness, but you're still in your cubicle at work. You are, verse 12, in the land of forgetfulness, and all you want to do is forget the pain you're experiencing right now. How devastating is spiritual depression? You feel dead. Your body just hasn't figured it out yet. What else? How devastating is spiritual depression? Second thing. You feel all alone, but you have people all around you. I mean, look at verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. Then go down to verse 18. I, you have caused my beloved. My beloved refers to your wife, your husband, your spouse, uh, close loved ones, close friends, and my friend, my neighbors, my neighbors, those at school, at HEB, at the gym, at church, right? Shun me. The only friend I now have, the only friend I now have is darkness, he says. That's how it ends. According to a very recent research by Cigna in partnership with Ipsos this year, I mean, it happened this year, uh, Americans, we are the most connected people in the history of the world, technologically, while at the same time, we are the most lonely people in the history of the world. Figure that out. The person in Psalm 88 is saying, my husband is shocked, even horrified by what I'm going through. My parents are shocked, they're horrified by what I'm going through. My friends, they're shocked, they're horrified by what I'm going through. They don't understand it. They don't understand me. So they avoid me. I am the avoided one. Now we're going to talk about helping those that struggle with depression next week, but I do want to say one thing here, and it's absolutely important that we see it. For now, we need to know this. Mercy doesn't need to understand to help. Mercy doesn't need to say anything to help. Mercy doesn't need to control anything to help. Mercy simply sits in the ashes with the sorrowful so they are not alone. So they are never alone. How devastating is spiritual depression? Third thing, and this is the most painful of them all, you feel abandoned by God. Oh, don't miss this, y'all. It's going to get really, really... Here's the deal. Next Sunday, we're going to have a discussion on depression. And it's there that I will be able to look you in the eye and make sure you understand what we're talking about. I don't have that privilege to do that right here. So some of the things I'm about ready to say and we're about ready to look at can be gravely misunderstood or not understood. Or there's a lot more things that need to be said. So 
Those things are going to be said that next Sunday when we can say, hey, are we all getting this, what we're saying here? Because we are entering into a realm that takes nuance. It takes incredible clarity. And if we don't have the incredible clarity, it could wreck you. So here we go. You ready? Verse 14. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? This is not just God being absent. This is not God mysteriously missing an action in your life. This is God actively absent in your life. In other words, this is God choosing to be absent in your life. I mean, listen to what the psalmist is saying. You have put me in the depths, verse 6. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, verse 7. You overwhelm me with all your ways, verse 7. You cause my spouse and my friends and my loved ones to stay away, verse 8 and verse 18. You make me a horror to others, verse 8. Your wrath sweeps over me, verse 6. Your dreadful assaults destroy me, verse 17. You, 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 God. It's even worse. He's howling for help but gets none. Do you see this? Look at verse 1. I cry out. This is not a nice prayer. This is a wailing. In the world of Harry Potter, this is a howler, okay? I cry out. I'm howling day and night. Do you see that day and night before you? Time, day and night, verse 2. In the morning, verse 13. Time is only mentioned in this psalm while he's begging for help, while he's pleading for help. In other words, this is the picture. The pain is so intense, he's literally watching or she's literally watching the clock with no relief. Now, if you go down to verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. Morning in the Bible, morning throughout the whole Bible, but morning in the Bible is when God shows up. Morning in the Bible is when God is the first one <clears throat> to greet you with his love, with his mercy, with his grace the moment you open your eyes. Morning in the Bible is when God answers your prayers from the day and the night before, but not here. Not here. I mean, what's going on, y'all? I mean, is God actively abandoning the psalmist? Uh, does God actively abandon you, his children? Is the abandonment here real? Is it imagined? What is it? Again, it's going to require a lot more than what we can do here. A longer, lingering conversation. But I'm going to give a shot at it, okay? Here's the first thing we need to say about this. Whether it's real or imagined, it feels real to the person. It's experienced as being real to the person. And this experience has some horrible symptoms in our life. And you're going to recognize some of them. You ready? Here they are. We become hypervigilant when we feel this way. When we feel God is absent, whether you consciously or subconsciously realize it, whether you are consciously aware that you're living your life as if God is absent, or consciously living your life as it is here, that God is actively absent, 
what ends up happening is we become hyper-vigilant people. You know what that word is? The other, another word for that? Anxious. Anxiety. We say things like, he's in his head. She's in her head. Another symptom of this is that we magnify. We magnify every weakness in us. We magnify every sin in us. We magnify every flaw, every limit, every imperfection, every failure. We magnify it, magnify it. The Puritans would say it's a, it's a place where you're, you're under accusation. We would say it's self-hatred and self-loathing and self-criticism. In the Brene Brown world, we call it the voices of criticism. The other horrible symptom is we fixate. We fixate, we obsess, we perfect, we try to control everything. This is perfectionism. This is all the control issues that go on in life. Zach Eswine, in his new book, Spurge and Sorrows, describes the terrible symptoms of spiritual depression this way. He first says, you're restless. That's his, his initial way of describing it. Restless. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, we strive, we agonize, we fret and worry. We work all the harder, never able to do enough, conscious only that our results are too small and that God remains constantly displeased. We never measure up. We spend our days fretting and anxious that God will walk away shaking his head unless we can get it together, unless we can get it right, unless we can be good enough. But there's a light torch in the cave, and he hints at it. He says something absolutely phenomenal in this book that's probably the best thing he said in the whole book. I don't know. There's lots because he quotes Spurgeon a ton. But he says this, the irony, listen to this, the irony of desertion. Listen for the torch in this. The irony of desertion, being actively abandoned by God, or God being actively absent in your life, pick your word. The irony of desertion is that God's absence feels overwhelmingly close to us. Oh, do you see that? Do you see that? God's absence is overwhelmingly close to you. There is a torch I mentioned. If Psalm 88 is a cave, there's a torch that's hanging on the right side of this psalm that you are supposed to grab when you enter into this psalm. And if you miss the torch, you go into the cave without light and you get lost and you probably don't come out. Do you see the torch? Look for it. If it's at the entrance, it's got to be near what? The beginning. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, there's the torch. Now, he heads into the cave. What does this mean? Why, why didn't he just say, Oh, Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. Oh, Lord, <clears throat> the warrior. Oh, Lord, the creator. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation. Because this is the God of the Bible. 
And the God of the Bible is a God of salvation. The God of the Bible is a God of grace. The God of the Bible is a God of rescue. The God of the Bible is a God of deliverance. The God of the Bible is the God who raises the dead. The God of the Bible is the one who goes there himself. In other words, the ancient says, he descended into hell. He descended into Psalm 88. He descended into the dungeon, the realm, the kingdom of death. He went down to Sheol at the cross. He sank into the bottomless pit in the regions dark and deep at the cross. He was set loose among the dead in the cross. The crucified Jesus went where God is not. So there will never, ever, ever be a place where God is not for you. Jesus descended where God was not. He went into the place of the active absence of God and was separated from God himself. In fact, Jesus howled, your wrath lies heavy upon me. Your dreadful salts are destroying me. Jesus cried out, you overwhelm me with all your waves. And then he finally whispers, I'm shut in with no escape. And because Jesus descended into the depths, he descended into hell, he descended into the active absence of God, he rewrites Psalm 88. Particularly the psalmist questions to God in verse 10 through 12. Do you see those? Let's see how he rewrites them. In other words, what's being said here about Jesus, about the God of salvation, because there is no God ultimately of salvation in the Old Testament because it all culminates into the God of Jesus on the cross. So any deliverance in the Old Testament, which is where this is, is just a shadow. It's just a, it's just a flicker. It's just a template. It's just a skeleton of the ultimate, the ultimate salvation that comes in Jesus. What this text is saying, what Jesus is saying about Psalm 88, because he quotes it, it's one of the most, it's one of the Psalms he quotes the most. What he's saying is, I rewrite spiritual depression. I rewrite depression. For instance, look at the questions in verse 10. Do you work wonders among the dead? Oh God, do you work, do you work wonders among the dead? Yes. Yes, I do. Do the departed, the dead, God, the departed, the dead, the Rephaim, do they rise up to praise you? Yes, they do. Is your Hesed, your steadfast love, your unfailing mercy, is it declared in the grave or is your faithfulness Declared an Abaddon? Of course, 
Where else will I declare it? Are your wonders, are you telling me, God, are your wonders known in the darkness? You bet they are. They shine the brightest. In fact, John was so overwhelmed by this, he actually said, the light, referring to Jesus, shines in the darkness. So, in spiritual depression, you feel dead, but Jesus... In spiritual depression, you feel all alone, but Jesus. In spiritual depression, you feel actively abandoned by God himself, but Jesus. 